when you came out with the hockey stick, what what was it that was uh, such a departure about it? Why did it represent a leap forward in our understanding about climate change? It was an incremental step forward in in reality. There, you know, our work built on the efforts of you know decades of careful work by other paleoclimatologists. It's it's a, a point that I, I try to make in, in in my book. We had extended what had been done before um, in an incremental way. We were able to. For the first time, we were able to uh, estimate uh, sort of a margin of error, so-called error bars, uh, the uncertainties in extending temperature estimates back deep back into the the past, centuries back into the past. Uh, so we had not only a more confident reconstruction of how temperatures had varied uh, over the past thousand years. Initially, the first 600 years, and then in a subsequent uh, publication, we extended it to the past thousand years. But we were able to frame the estimates uh, with within you know an estimated margin of error, and that allowed us to begin to draw certain conclusions uh, about the recent warming that you know, not only is it warming, but that that warming does appear to be unusual in this longer term context. There were other reconstructions of this sort that had been done in the past, and there are many others that have been done since. And our work was really part of a body of work. Uh, I think the reason it became an icon in the climate change debate just had to do with chance circumstances. It may have been the time, you know, this late 1990s when the climate change debate was really starting to come to a a crescendo in the sense that, uh, you know, the science was increasingly certain with respect to the proposition that, you know, we are warming the planet and changing the climate. And the hockey stick curve almost came out as an exclamation point on that. It occurred, you know, in in the wake of the warmest years we had ever seen. 1998 was the warmest year we had ever seen on Earth in recorded history. But that recorded history only went back, you know, a century or so. We were able to provide a longer-term context for that because of the work we were publishing simultaneously with that in 1998 and 1999. Um, And the curve told a simple story, I think, it, you know, you didn't need to understand the physics and mathematics of how a theoretical climate model works, for example, to understand what it was telling you, that it, it portrayed in a very uh, transparent way the unusual nature of the recent warming and by inference, the relationship that that warming has with, with human activity, with the burning of fossil fuels. But ultimately, it was the fact that it was featured in the summary for policymakers of the third assessment report of the IPCC in 2001 that turned it into an icon in the climate change debate. And once it became an icon in the climate change debate, um, there was essentially a, a target on our backs. We've had a year of extreme weather all around the world, Hurricane Sandy and so on and so on. What's your analysis of where we're at now in terms of climate change? The the scientific evidence is in. So, you know, there is no serious debate anymore, not just about whether climate change is real or it's due to us, but that we are seeing the impacts of climate change playing out in increasingly damaging ways, whether it's Hurricane Sandy, which you know was the largest storm hurricane and then hybrid system that we've ever seen, the lowest central pressure ever north of Cape Hatteras in the U.S. And it you know led to record-breaking flooding for New York City, for example, in part because there was a foot of sea level rise already built, built into that coastal surge. And that foot of sea level rise was in substantial part due to us, due to 
um, a global sea level rise uh, from warming of the planet. We saw, you know, record-breaking drought and uh, wildfires in the western U.S. Um, had a hugely damaging impact on our crops, on grain uh, production in the U.S. and uh, food prices. So. I think we've now gotten to the point where people can see climate change happening with their own eyes, um, and it becomes increasingly less credible when you hear cable news commentators claim that it's an elaborate hoax, that it's not real. People are, are no longer getting fooled by that sort of rhetoric because they're seeing it play out, especially older people who've been around for a while and know that there are things that are happening with our weather and climate today that just never happened when they were growing up. So I think we've reached that point where climate change denial is no longer even superficially credible. That means that opponents to taking action are turning to increasingly desperate measures. The rhetoric is becoming louder and more acerbic. The attacks are becoming fiercer and they're spreading. They're not just attacking the science of climate change, um, the Koch brothers are funding attacks against clean energy, against wind, against solar. They are retreating somewhat. In my book, I talk about the ladder of climate change denial. So over time, climate change deniers have sort of retreated down this uh, ladder. First, there's no warming. Well, okay, there is warming, but it's not due to us. Okay, well, maybe it's due in part to us, uh, but much of it is natural okay, well, maybe most of it is due to us, but the impacts aren't going to be that bad and we can adapt and so on. And uh, we're seeing sort of climate change deniers retreat down that ladder now towards a position that, well, it'll be too expensive to do anything about it and we can adapt or we can engage in so-called geoengineering. That seems to be where they're going. They're sort of withdrawing their troops from the front lines of... Uh, contesting the science and repositioning them along a new front line that has to do with economics and policy. That, it's perhaps predictable. In fact, that's what we've predicted that they will continue to do to descend down that ladder slowly. But the fact is, you know, that we can't afford that. Um, if we are going to avert potentially catastrophic changes in the climate, we've got to get our fossil fuel emissions under control within a matter of years, not decades. You talked about how it's increasingly clear to more and more people that this is what's happening. But is it too late? Is it, it, there, is, there seems to be an increasing number of studies coming out that are saying there is really no way now that we can avoid two degrees. What's your sense? Is it still, is it still, can we still avoid two degrees or are we inevitably going to exceed that? We can. I, I would contest some of the studies that have argued um, that, that we can't do it. Um, if you work through the underlying assumptions, in the end, all they're saying is we won't have the will to do it. They're not saying it's – there's no evidence that it is physically impossible to avoid two degrees warming. It is certainly true that with each year of inaction, that curve that describes sort of how soon we have to bring emissions to a peak and how quickly they have to decline, that curve becomes steeper and steeper. It's now the case that we will have to bring our emissions down far more quickly in the decades ahead than we would have. We could have sort of made a soft landing if we had gotten our emissions uh, in hand, you know, a decade ago or two decades ago. But the fact is now, we really have to undergo that transition quite rapidly. And that means we're going to have to make some 
difficult choices if we're going to avoid two degrees warming of the planet, uh, which in all likelihood means keeping CO2 concentrations below 450 parts per million CO2. They're almost 400 now. Um, and if you do the math, uh, it means, yeah, we've got to bring uh, fossil fuel emissions to a peak within a matter of years and begin ramping them down uh, quite dramatically. Uh, that means we have to be transitioning more rapidly than we otherwise would have to alternative sources of, uh, of energy. And, you know, there is an important debate that is going to have to take place over the role that nuclear power uh, might have, uh, the role that uh, natural gas, so-called transition fuel, um, might have in this debate. Although there are all sorts of caveats there um, because, you know, with natural gas come a whole, a whole number of other risks and complications. And, you know, obviously nuclear power has uh, very uh, serious risks uh, that it poses as well, as we were reminded uh, of, you know, just a, a year uh, and a half ago uh, with Fukushima. You know, so the fact is we are now in a position where we have to trade off risks. You know, as uh, John Holdren, the presidential science advisor, put it this way, and I think it's, it's you know, a very good way of framing it. We will engage in some combination of mitigation, adaptation, and suffering. And the discussion now is really about how much of each of those uh, we're willing to, you know, tolerate. And the emphasis we have to we have to put on on each of those options. I talked a while ago to Kevin Anderson at the Tyndall Climate Center. So he, he his analysis is that we need to we need basically ten percent cut in emissions starting now basically he he was quite critical in the interview that i did with him of uh some of his his colleagues where he felt that that within the climate the community of climate scientists there were people who were kind of happy to tell the our leaders what what they wanted to hear you know to sort of give a kind of a more uh, sanitized version uh, of the reality of things. How, how easy have you found it to really uh, sort of hold hold on to kind of telling it like it is when the temptation must be sometimes to just go, oh, well, it's not that bad? Obviously, we have to balance a number of considerations in the way that we communicate the science and its implications to the public. There is always the danger, and I've seen colleagues who pre present such a pessimistic picture that it runs the danger of causing exactly the opposite of the intended response rather than people saying, wow, this is really a problem. We need to do something about it, find a solution, work towards uh, solving this problem. They instead just throw up their hands and say, well, you know, obviously it's too late to do anything. So I'm just going to go ahead, driving my Hummer and, you know, um, and living profligate lifestyle because there's nothing we can uh, do about it anyways. I think that would be <laughs> extremely harmful uh, if that were the response we were to see in the public. And so it's important to present optimism where it's justified because there, there are some reasons for optimism here. Fact is that we faced global environmental problems before and, and mitigated them, uh, dealt with them before they became an even worse disaster, whether it's acid rain or um, ozone depletion. So there's a historical precedent for believing that we could be up to the challenge of solving this problem too. And 
you know, there are important developments that have taken place in the area of renewable energy in recent years. Um, you know, there are credible calculations by uh, scientists from NOAA, uh, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration here in the U.S., um, about a, a year ago, published a study that showed that we could likely meet uh, 70% of our energy needs uh, within uh, 20 years or so through a combination of, of solar and, and wind energy. Um, I think even as high as 85%, if you begin to factor in geothermal and other non-carbon-based energy sources. So there's, it's, we can see, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel. We can see a future a couple decades down the road where we are able to get the energy that we need cleanly here in the U.S. and throughout the rest of the world. Uh, the fact is, though, that we need to find a bridge to that future. And that means making some tough decisions. But there's reason to be optimistic that we can get there if we engage in a, in a good faith discussion of the risks that we need to um, that trade off in, in, in building that bridge um, to a, a renewable energy future. And the problem here in the U.S., and I think it's true in the U.K. and elsewhere to some extent as well, is that we're not having that discussion, that good faith discussion that is you know, there to be had about uh, the solutions to the problem, because we still have politicians who are acting essentially as mouthpieces for the fossil fuel interest and other special interests funding climate change denial, who continue to deny that the problem even exists. Um, that's the problem we have here in the U.S. If we can get past that, then uh, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Then we can see our way to, uh, you know, to solving this problem before we do indeed commit ourselves to um, to truly dangerous changes in the climate. In the book, you have a chapter called something like "The Fight Back Begins" or "The Fight Back Is Underway." You know, in the sort of in the aftermath of uh, of Climate Gate, how how is that fight back going? Do you think? Do you feel that the that the the the, the, the arguments that the science is is really coming back strongly and uh, and and gaining a, a much stronger foothold? I think so. I, I think where you see that most clearly, the real bellwether here is the way our media treat the issue. Climate gate, you know, uh, which is a terrible term because, you know, in fact, the only crime was the criminal theft of the emails, right? Uh, rather than the material, you know, and ironically, uh, Watergate you know, was, a, was, was a scandal because of the theft. <laughs> That's why we, you know, it wasn't because of the materials that Nixon found. <laughs> so there's a cruel irony in the, in the framing. And, the, the, you know, the, the forces of, of denial were very effective in framing that issue in the media. Um, early on, they helped frame the narrative, and, and many in the media just sort of uncritically adopted their narrative. Uh, but that was in part due to the fact as I argue in the book, that there was already a, a, a context, a, a larger environment where the media was receptive to that sort of contrarian message, in part because there was this sort of, um, I think there was this feeling that the inconvenient truth um, and with Hurricane Katrina here in the U.S., and there was this crescendo of concern over climate change. It's almost as if um, the, the media overstated the extent of the problem back, you know, in 2005, 2006, when many of my fellow, you know, many of my colleagues were uh, saying that, uh, you know, that the, the debate over the science was over from here on, uh, it's just going to be a matter of debating policy um, and impacts. 
And I knew that that wasn't true. Um, and I knew that there would be an opportunity for forces of denial to sort of retrench because there was this euphoria, false complacency within the scientific community. There was also an opportunity among climate change deniers to exploit the fact that the media had almost gone over the top in the way that they covered the issue. Front page stories and Time magazine with, uh, you know, polar bears on the front, uh, you know, on, on ice drifts with, you know, huge and uh, huge lettering, be worried, be very worried, right? That almost created a caricature of the climate change issue. And that also, because of, in my view, because of the way media narratives sometimes work, it became stale. Just saying climate change is really bad, it's a real threat, people sort of became um, almost, uh, they almost became numbed uh, to the point where, you know, journalists had to find a new narrative. That narrative was stale. It wasn't, you know, getting attention. It wasn't getting eyes on, you know, on, on web pages. It wasn't, they needed a new narrative. And that new narrative was one that they helped create <laughs> that, oh, the science has been overstated. Concern has been overstated. In part, if to the extent that that might at all be true, it would only be because of some of the over-the-top media coverage of the science. But nonetheless, that became the new narrative, and the pendulum, pendulum then very of the you know the the so-called uh, um, the Overton window, I guess it's called, of you know what's acceptable in uh, in in public discourse, sort of swung in the other direction, and the forces of denial seized upon that, um, and the stolen emails, uh, the attacks, the the bad faith attacks, disingenuous attacks against the IPCC, seizing on you know the fact that we had a cold winter in the U.S. Uh, as if that alone has anything to do with ongoing global warming and climate change. It all sort of came together as a perfect storm that allowed the forces of denial to retrench. And, you know, in the book, I sort of frame it as a, um, it was a battle of the bulge. It was a last stand. I think we will look back and say that that was the last stand for climate change denial. I, I think we're moving beyond that now, but not without a cost. You know, the cost of that five or six or seven years of inaction that was bought with that disinformation campaign, uh, potentially translates to billions, if not trillions of dollars of losses in the area of, of food and water and um, damage to, to the economy because of uh, severe weather impacts like Hurricane Sandy, like the 11 greater than $1 billion uh, weather and climate-related disasters we saw um, in the U.S. in 2011, and even greater damages in 2012. So there was a huge cost of that in terms of inaction and having delayed the process of getting control of our fossil fuel emissions to the point where it's now going to be much more expensive. It's deferred maintenance. It's going to cost us a lot more now because of the more rapid transition we're going to have to undergo away from fossil fuels. You know, this, it's for all these reasons that I, I describe that disinformation campaign by vested interests, including fossil fuel interests, as a, it was not just a crime against humanity, it was a crime against the planet. And I think we'll look back at that. We'll look back at it uh, that way. Did you start your career with a thick skin or where did your thick skin come from 
you know, when when Climate Gate all started, did you feel you had a thick skin at that stage? And if not, what was the process of developing one? In you had to, you would have had to develop one in quite a hurry. And how was that? Yeah, I think it it's sort of a two way street. I think you know it was a learning experience for many of my colleagues. Uh, I would even say perhaps for the scientific community um, at writ large that um, you know to recognize that this strategy was being deployed against scientists. Uh, you know, they had seen it before. They had seen it with Steve Schneider. They had seen it with Ben Santer. But um, I guess nobody, I, I guess nobody had quite framed it in the way that I tried to frame it in my book and in the way that I spoke out uh, about this. Um, so I suppose, to some extent, part of what I've been trying to do um, you know, in my outreach efforts, in my book, et cetera, is to educate my fellow scientists to the fact that we are, you know, as Nature, the journal Nature said, we're in a, a street fight with um, these Cretans who are looking to discredit us and our science, or who are looking to fool the public. Um, and we have to recognize that. We have to recognize that these are the tactics that are being used against us. That doesn't mean that we should be using the tactics of street fighting ourselves, but we have to have, um, you know, effective strategies for defending ourselves against those tactics. And, you know, again, the best defense is a good offense. Um, and so if we can use those opportunities to actually do positive outreach, to get the the positive message about what the science has to say about what we need to do to uh, meet meet the challenge. Um, if we can turn those those situations into opportunities to promote that positive message, then not only are we defending ourselves against the attacks, we're, we're defeating you know our detractors because we're actually turning you know the board around on them. And I, I'd like to think that we've seen some of that in recent years, um, you know, with uh, the Heartland Institute and uh, the meltdown that they experienced last year when, you know, their tactics were exposed um, uh, to the public, uh, when they um, got a lot of bad press and they were really framed in, a, in the way they never wanted to be framed. Uh, similar thing with the Koch brothers um, who fund so much of uh, sort of organized uh, climate change denial here in the U.S. and I think to some extent abroad, although the Murdoch uh, empire seems to have a greater role in, in the U.K. Here in the U.S., obviously the Murdoch um, uh, media network is a major pillar in the climate change denial network, but uh, also folks like the Koch brothers. And for the longest time, they were sort of uh, operating under the radar screen, and they were getting away with funding front groups who were engaged in, 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 in attacks on the science and attacks on scientists and bad faith, essentially propaganda efforts. For the longest time, they sort of were able to do this without any personal repercussions. And over the last few years now, we've seen that, you know, media outlets who are willing to expose um, just you may have seen the last uh, 48 hours, uh, a series of pieces in The Independent by Steve Connor. Excellent articles. Uh, he actually won an award last year at the American Geophysical Union for his uh, coverage of um, you know, climate science and the politics of climate science. And so he has a, a series of articles, too, and I think there's another one in the pipeline uh, just over the past um, two, 
a day or two about how, you know, these vested interests have been funding a stealth campaign to discredit climate science, to discredit renewable energy. Uh, there's another article, uh, I forget the uh, news outlet uh, that was just out within the last couple of days that opponents of, of um, you know, that fossil fuel inter special interests have been actually paying individuals to protest at um, renewable energy, $20 per person. I mean, and we know that that's been going on and there's more and more coverage of sort of this stealth campaign, um, even in on the internet, you know, in news groups um, and um, on blogs. There, we know there are individuals who are being paid by vested interests to post contrarian <laughs> comments on blogs to create, you know, this atmosphere, this appearance of a broad-based opposition, right, to climate, to confronting climate change and to uh, matters of sustainability. Um, it's classic astroturf, and it's starting to really be exposed in a way that it hadn't before. There was a term that, that, that comes through in the book a few times is what you call the Serengeti strategy about how people are kind of targeted and sort of picked off one by one. Before that happened, did you feel that you had that kind of support or did you feel you needed to build a kind of a stronger support between everybody? And how did you do that? Yeah, no, I was battle hardened, <laughs> if you will, uh, by that point. I mean, I was attacked heavily um, by, again, by the usual suspects, front groups, uh, industry-funded front groups, and their paid uh, advocates uh, more than a decade ago. Once the, you know, our, our reconstruction, the hockey stick reconstruction sort of became an icon in the climate change debate, something that was beyond my control. Uh, it wasn't of my doing, but it did evolve into this icon in the debate. And uh, as soon as it did, I was a subject to increasingly harsh and disingenuous uh, attacks against my character, uh, not just on my science, but on my character. Uh, you, in that situation, you have to sort of, you either sink or, or swim. And fortunately, I had friends and colleagues who had been through this sort of thing before, folks like Steve Schneider and Ben Santer, who were there, you know, to give me support, um, to advise me, you know, to provide me advice as to how to deal with these attacks. Um, so there was a network, a support network that was there for me. Part of what I've tried to do now, uh, you know, sadly, you know, Steve Schneider is no longer with us. Um, and, you know, there's a new generation of younger scientists who are being subject to the same sort of smear tactics. I like to think that I'm now part of that network of uh, more senior scientists who are there to help them. If you were to give advice to somebody who for the first time has sat down and opened an email of someone being very aggressive and unpleasant uh, to them out of the blue, what would your advice be to them? Yeah, it would be don't reply to that email. <laughs> and, you know, that's the first thing. Uh, in fact, one of the most important things is to not make early mistakes. Part of what these villainous <laughs> forces of anti-science, part of uh, their tactic is to expose scientists who have never had to deal with something like this, to this onslaught of uh, venom and to harsh uh, attacks that they've never had to deal with before in the hope that they will respond irrationally, that they will make some mistakes. They'll say things that they shouldn't have said in the heat of the moment. Uh, they will do things that they shouldn't have done. So uh, it's extremely important to not react. Don't reply to those emails. Do any, don't do anything rash. Um, talk to 
your colleagues, your more senior colleagues who have been through this sort of thing before and, and talk to them about what are the effective ways to fight back against these smears. Use the fact that there isn't a network of scientists and, and not just scientists, but organizations who are there to help scientists deal with these attacks and the Union of Concerned Scientists uh, in the U.S. immediately comes to mind. In fact, the Union of Concerned Scientists has been out there uh, over the past few years doing workshops at scientific conferences, writing sort of how-to documents, doing everything they can to assist uh, especially young scientists in, in dealing with these hostile circumstances that scientists increasingly find themselves in because uh, there are vested interests who don't like the message uh, in our science.